Hello and welcome back, everybody. Today I'm joined by Anya Gore, horror model and host of the fabulous podcast Horror and More with Anya Gore. Anya, how are you doing today? I'm doing really well. Thank you. How are you? I'm good, thanks. I mean, I was just showing you uh, off mic my scary attic room that I record in and um, trying not to think too much about the film we're going to talk about today because it is one of the scarier ones that I've covered on the podcast so far and um, being an attic does not really help uh, with that in that area to be honest. So Anya I would like to know first of all how did you get into horror and then more specifically how did that lead into like your horror modeling which is terrifying by the way sexy and terrifying which I love. (laughs) thank you thank you that's what I'm going for I want to be nightmare fuel so that's amazing to hear Uh, I have been a horror fan since I was about how old was I seven six or seven and as the story goes with a lot of people my mother introduced me to horror and I saw, I will never forget this, in the first year, I watched three horror movies, which my mother made me continually watch, The Fog, the original The Fog, every Halloween, and it scared the daylights out of me every year. I hated it, but I couldn't stop watching it. I would sleep in my parents' bedroom for weeks afterwards because I was so young. And then they introduced me to The Shining and then this original Canadian horror movie called The Changeling, not to be mistaken with the Angelina Jolie version. Uh Um, And The Changeling had to do with a child being killed and a ghost. So I just started the ground running at such a young (laughs) age. And it just sort of built from there. And ironically, my mother hated when I would watch horror movies outside of Halloween. Mm -hmm. So I would go over to my friend's house and I would, you know, mass watch as many horror movies as I could. (laughs) It just continued from there. And I'm a massive horror fan. I watch horror movies all the time by myself. I I never get scared Mm -hmm. ever. So I'm constantly looking for things to scare me. Like push your boundaries. Oh yeah. Yeah. There's, I did watch The Night House, which I'm actually going to be doing a podcast review on. Oh, cool. In the next little while. So I'll kind of get into it. But it was the first movie I watched in a while where I actually was starting to look behind me a little bit. Yeah, there's a jump scare in that in The Night House that had me like, I, I was like, I have to pause this and just have a break. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah no, I agree. That's one of the scarier ones that's come out recently, for sure. Totally. And, um, and that's why... I've always been kind of drawn to the scary stuff and the horror stuff. And then just over two years ago, I ended up connecting with my main photographer, mm-hmm. Melissa from Malevolent Productions. And I had sort of told her that when I was pregnant, I was trying to find a photographer to do a Rosebury's baby theme tour shoot, but I Amazing. couldn't find anybody. <laughs> no, I was brave enough. <laughs> No, no, no. People were like, no, I'm not going to do that for you. We'll do a normal one. But I was like, I want the knife. I want to be pregnant. And yeah. Pussies. Right? Totally. Uh, but the moment I mentioned that to her, I could just see her eyes light up. <laughs> and she was like, you like horror? And I said, uh, I do like horror. And she said, yes. And we just started planning Amazing. our first shoot 
And that first shoot that we did was about eight or nine hours. So we had never spent any significant time together before this. We knew who each other was, but, uh, and it was the most adrenaline rush I have had probably in like 15 years. And it just sort of continued from there. And then we have grown where I've worked with other photographers. She's worked with a lot of other models and we have kind of, we've teamed up as well. We have a dark arts Patreon right now called 4X Morbid. And we've got other things coming up, which I'm not going to talk about yet. Ooh, <laughs> secrets. I mean, what I love about your work is that you fully go for it. I mean, when we're talking horror model, we're not talking like you just put on a scream, a ghost face mask and you know, sit in the bathtub, which no shame to anyone who does that, by the way. But I love how you fully, like some of your pictures are genuinely so terrifying. And I just love that. And you go to some like really scary, I've seen some of your shoots, you've been to like really scary, like looks like abandoned places, like abandoned hospitals or and forests and stuff. Like what is the scariest shoot you've ever done? Oh, um... Well, okay. Yeah. So more, more often than not, we try to find abandoned locations because we are really going for a raw, authentic vibe. As a horror fan, I want my images to look legitimately like they're from a horror movie. They are. They do. So <laughs> that things. And actually, fun fact, uh, almost every shoot that I do, I end up hurting myself and real blood gets involved. Oh. So in almost every one of my shoots, there's real blood there. Authenticity. Yeah, sometimes it's a lot, sometimes it's a little. Um, Just sort of depends. But I'm trying to think. So recently, now we didn't end up shooting at this location. We wanted to, but we left because. So Melissa um, is a psychic empath and she used to do paranormal investigating. And so she's very, very in tune to stuff. I, before I had children, I used to be in tune to stuff. I would see stuff all the time and I would feel it. Um, And then that stopped after I had children up until the past year. And she took me to this abandoned barn where we just, we walked in. She wanted to show it to me first and we were going to just sort of suss it out and see what we could shoot there. And the second you walked in there, I it was bad. <gasps> it was the energy there was so bad. It was Oh my god. All I could explain it was that it felt like how a real murder murder environment would feel. Oh. The energy there, it was draining, it was really bad, bad negative energy. And then on top of that, we found a bone there. Oh my and god. <laughs> This, it kind of, it spooked me a little bit because we ended up picking it up. I have video footage I haven't posted yet of it. Uh, we picked it up and this bone, so she's been there before and that bone wasn't there before. <gasps> this, this bone was bleached. It was clean. There was no teeth marks on it. Like it was a dog bone. Holy shit. And it wasn't, it wasn't ripped like it would be an animal ripping it. Um, and it, we looked it up and it kind of looked like, a tibia bone that would go into a knee socket. And it was, it was really creepy, but we also didn't, we don't know enough about, you know, chew toys and things like that. So we didn't know what it was. So we took it, we took it with us and we ended up giving it to the police and we, we haven't heard anything yet. So we don't know, 
But while we were walking around this place, taking video footage, we ended up walking out in this very large forest in the back. And there was like crime scene tape at one point blocking something off. And we just thought, no, there was too much negative energy there. And we both kind of looked at each other and we got scared and we left because we were like, we can't shoot here. Oh, good idea. Honestly, (laughs) that's fucked. I kind of feel like when, when, especially knowing she's in a psychic empath and I don't know about you, but I do feel sometimes, especially when you go dabble in dark art or when you're watching horror movies, I feel sometimes like I'm opening a portal or I'm kind of waving my hands. definitely. Come on over. My mom always used to say like, don't have scary videotapes of the house because it's like inviting something in and, um... I, I mean, I have obviously not lived by that rule, but sometimes it does feel like you're a bit like, oh God, I uh, don't know if I should be looking this far into this. And I think um, I think you definitely made the right decision to get the fuck out of there because I got like real chills when you were telling that story. Like that sounded really horrible. It was weird. We also just, you know, um, we what we do is very dark and can be triggering but at the same time i am not actually a murdering psychopath so if if some people were to be there i wouldn't even know what to do god knows god forbid something didn't happen there but uh, like you could have been implicated or something if you guys had like messed around with the scene or whatever so that is definitely a scary place to shoot thank you so much for sharing that (laughs) not gonna sleep tonight I haven't. I haven't even told anybody really about that yet. This is the first time it's been an exclusive. Sad. That's right. <laughs> so, Anya, your FFO that you gave me was occult, blood, and nighttime. And I can kind of guess from these words the kind of horror that you're into. Um, but why did you choose these words specifically? What What do you vibe with about this type of horror? Okay. Well, blood because. I'm, I'm covered in blood. Every, <laughs> every one of my shoots, I'm covered in blood. Um, so it's just, I connect with, with blood and both acidity and not. Um, nighttime, because the aesthetic for my favorite genres of movies are usually taking place at nighttime. Not mm-hmm. always, but usually. And then recently, once I started doing this horror modeling, I've really defined that occult are my favorite type of horror movies, mm-hmm. and I find them the, the scariest. I just find something unnerving about occults, which is anything that delves into calling, uh, sacrificing, or anything like that. I find it to be scarier than paranormal or monsters or slashers it's just it resonates with me no i i totally agree i think what we were speaking about before in the vein of kind of inviting things in especially with the occult you know a vampire or a witch or whatever they can get you at any time but the occult you're actively looking for opportunities to invite something in and that is pretty much perfectly in tune with the movie that we decided to talk about um, yes. which is Ari Aster's 2018 debut, which always blows my mind that it, this was his debut movie, Hereditary. Hail Payman! Hail Payman! Hail Payman! Hail Payman! 
this is, I mean, okay, first of all, this film is so divisive. I mean, I have heard people say, I mean, actually, Ari Aster in general is very divisive because if you look at Midsummer as well, same reaction. I have heard people say that Hereditary is the most disturbing film they've ever seen. It's regularly called like the scariest film of our generation. And then some people have this really aggressively angry attitude towards it. Like they hate people liking it. And yes, <laughs> it's, it really blows my mind. I'm like, I've seen people online say, oh, Midsummer and Hereditary are just absolute crap. And I'm like, well, objectively, they're actually very well made movies. I mean, even if they're not scary to you, you can't say that they're not well made. But I'm, I'm obviously biased because I love Ari Aster. But what, what do you think makes this film especially so divisive and so polarizing? Well, what I love about it is when people get that angry about it, that is what is so effective about this movie. People either love it or they hate it. And the people that hate it feel very passionate about hating it. (laughs) And that's when you know a director has really succeeded because he's getting you to talk about it even if you don't like it. And then the people who do like it love like his slow burn to this movie. So I remember seeing this in the theater and I didn't really know what I was getting into. I think that was one of the big things with people when they first saw this movie is you didn't really understand what it was you were going to walk into other than you know that it was sad and dreadful. And as once you kind of connect the pieces and the pace starts picking up, he brings you to this elevated discomfort level that just never gets released And then the movie ends and you were walking away feeling uncomfortable, scared. You're feeling like you just start recycling everything in your mind going, what did I just watch? And there are very few, I think, directors today that can actively do that as especially, like you said, as their debut movie. Yeah, it's wild. It is wild. That's exactly (laughs) correct. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I... Howie, you're completely right. I have, whether it be love or hate, people's reactions to this movie are so visceral. I've I've had people tell me about how, and I'm sure you've heard the same, people can't sleep after this film. It gets in your head. It People have felt physically ill watching it. And I know you hear that about a lot of films, like, oh, people threw up or people left the cinema. But I genuinely can see that for this film. Like, like you said, there is this sense of bleakness that doesn't let up the whole way through from the opening scene to the ending scene. There is not a moment's peace. There's <laughs> just nothing, nothing yeah. there. There's no, no, no real, there's no relieving uh, moments for, for Tony Collette's character. No, none at all. There's, you know, even Midsummer, I guess, had a few moments where, you know, at the end we could kind of empathize with Danny and there were moments that were even funny that's not the case in Hereditary, I don't think, anyway. <laughs> not <laughs> so, a lot, not no, a lot. No, not too many. In terms of, like, the scariest film that people have ever seen, what do you think about that? Where would you rank it in terms of, like, your top scariest movies ever? Is it up there at the top? Oh, this is in my top ten. Yes. It, it's actually bumped itself up recently to, to my number three spot. I I used to have um, House of a Thousand Corpses at number three, but they flipped, and now Hereditary is number three for me. 
the, the thing about this movie is if you are somebody like us who doesn't really scare very easily, mm-hmm. you can watch this movie and understand how scary it could be to a popcorn movie watcher. Absolutely, I do feel like yeah. There's a lot of jump scares and the slow buildup to that crazy climactic ending. But like, it's also really interesting and it's this mystery that you're trying to piece together as you're watching it. And so it appeals to people who may not feel scared about things. Yes, definitely. In such a way that it just gets under our skin. And I, I've rewatched it probably since, since I saw it in the theater six or seven times now. And every single watch is, I learned something new. And I feel like even though there's a couple scenes, which I don't know if we want to get into not mentioning any spoilers. No, every, we want spoilers, everything. Oh, okay. Yes. Okay. <laughs> well, the, the crazy beheading scene, even though you know it's coming, it's still just as shocking. It's, you aren't, you aren't knocked in the face, jump scare shocked by it, but it's still, every time it gets me, every mm-hmm. single time. It's the way it starts so slowly, just like a little noise, and then Peter looking, oh. Uh, but yeah, I am very envious that you got to see this movie for the first time in the cinema. I did, the first time I watched it, I was at my house, just watching it at home but I did get a chance to see it in the movie theater and I swear to god even though like you said I knew everything that was coming my heart was I thought I was going to throw up from anxiety the the sound the huge picture you know seeing Charlie's head on that giant screen I was like I I was like oh my god I'm going to have a panic attack because I just couldn't handle it it's such a I mean I think people, if they can get the chance, go and watch it at the cinema if it's ever replaying near you because it's just a fucking nightmare, to be honest. Oh, yeah. Well, and and what I like most about this movie as well is it fits that nighttime description I gave you. Everything about it is very dark. It's dark blues, it's dark greens, it's blacks, it's nighttime. And it's just, even though it's so dark, it's so visually stunning. Yeah, it is. It's really beautiful. I mean, when I watched it again this time, I was kind of focusing on what screenshots to use for my account. And there were just so, so many gorgeous shots in it. So many horrible shots too. But yeah, like you said, it's a really beautiful film. And even the scenes in the daytime are dark somehow they are dark and I don't mean in like a metaphorical sense I mean they visually seem dark even though there's like bright sunshine um anyway let's get into Hereditary because it's a movie that's just ready and waiting to be torn apart so Hereditary follows the Graham family who are a very dysfunctional uncomfortable family unit they all seem to dislike each other and resent each other to a certain degree. Um, it's safe to say this is not a happy home. So we have the mother, Annie Graham, played in amazing talent by Tony Collette. Um, one of the best horror performances I've ever seen. And uh, I don't think I'm alone there. I mean, this is one of those films where everyone's like, the Oscar, the Academy not recognizing this movie is just... I mean, they never recognize exactly. horror, but it's it's so fucked up that she didn't even get a nod or anything. I know. It's, yeah. So Annie is a very strange mother figure. She 
well, she clearly loves her two children, but she doesn't really seem to like them at various parts throughout the movie, which we will get into later. Then we have the husband, Steve Graham, played by Gabriel Byrne, who is probably the most normal person in the film, um, probably because he's not a blood relative of... Uh, Ellen Lee, who is Annie's mother and the grandma of the Graham family, and we start Hereditary at her funeral. Uh, then we have Peter Graham. He's the son, played by Alex Wolf. Um, adorable. What a sweetheart. And pretty much the pawn in this entire horrible game that's being played. And then we have the iconic Charlie, played by Millie Shapiro. One of the things I love about this movie is the bait and switch that they did with Charlie. You know, she was all over the marketing. She was on the poster. And then within like 30 minutes, she's gone. So Hereditary opens with an obituary for Ellen Taper Lee, who is the grandmother. And it's one of the first things that already strikes me in this movie is how emotionless the obituary is. It just says like, she will be missed. Um, I mean, I've read some others. It's like dearest grandma or beloved grandma and stuff. And this one is, I think it says like she was a grandma and it's just kind of like, yeah. 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 (laughs) Um, We then get an opening shot of the treehouse, which zooms in on a dollhouse, which then transitions into a real room. And this is just one of many examples in this film of amazing cinematography that, you know, converts everything looks like a miniature. In this film, you know, Annie's job is that she makes miniatures and, you know, it's just a little hint already that this family are being toyed with. They're puppets, they're little dolls. So we zoom in on Peter, who is sleeping, and poor Steve is desperately trying to get the family ready for the funeral. And I don't mean to laugh at Steve because he is the one of the biggest victims in this whole thing but just his like his exasperation as this family just will not speak to each other and he's like desperately trying to get them all get their shit together you know but the entire the the ending of this film too with with steve's demise it's just it's very Everything, like you're saying, it's so sad. It's a, it's a He's really sad so film. hard. Yeah. <laughs> Justice for Steve. So Steve, then he goes <laughs> up to the treehouse where little freak Charlie, bless her, is sleeping in the freezing cold. And Steve is like, you're going to get pneumonia. And she just says, oh, it's okay. And Charlie is a very unsettling figure in just the way she acts. She's obviously not a normal child. And I think we can already tell at this point. So then we go to Ellen's funeral. Um, Annie is speaking at the funeral about how her mother was a deeply private person. It's open casket. And we notice that Ellen is wearing a very strange necklace with a kind of symbol or sigil on it. And so is Annie. There's so many little details, even in this just one, this tiny scene, you know, where there's that strange man who like smiles at Charlie for no reason. He's standing behind yeah. her, I know. And he's just like grinning. And that that's one of those things where if this you could just miss that. If you weren't paying attention, you could miss it. And we get a, a great setup of Charlie and the family as a character. We see Charlie does her infamous cluck sound, her... Um, which... We do that over <laughs> <laughs> I've been practicing. <laughs> She's drawing her weird pictures in her notebook. She's drawing Annie, uh, Annie crying. Um, she's munching away on chocolate, and Annie comments that they didn't bring the EpiPen. So first of all, I kind of get the feeling straight away that 
they don't even care enough about Charlie to bring her EpiPen when she's obviously <laughs> deathly allergic to nuts and they just go out and about and she, and Annie's like, oh, we don't, don't, are there nuts in that? And she's already eaten half of it. Yeah. I don't know. I just think this family just hate each other. <laughs> it definitely shows a bit of a disconnect there with the mom and which is just such a representation of what you were saying that there, it's when she makes that comment later about how she didn't want to be his mother, right? Mm-hmm. This movie is very has a very interesting look at motherhood that I don't think a lot of movies are often brave enough to look at. And the traumas that come along with being a mother that are sometimes passed down from your mother too. I mean, I'm sure as much as we all may or may not love our mothers, we can always admit we get some fucked up shit come down <laughs> through the family tree. And... Um, it's kind of our responsibility to find out where it is and fix it, which Annie fails to do in this film. So the family get home after the funeral and then there's this amazing tiny bit that, again, you may miss if you're not in tune with what's going on, is that when the family return home from the funeral, you can hear footsteps upstairs. And it took me three watches to hear that. Oh, I'm going to have to go back and, <laughs> right? and listen. Yes. I haven't even... I've watched this... Every time I watch this, I pick up on something new. That's that's the amazing thing about it. And it took me, yeah, it took me about three times because someone pointed out on, I think it was Reddit, that when they come home, just before they open the door, you can hear, like, footsteps running upstairs. Isn't that fucked up? (laughs) Um and that's obviously that's how, that's how deep the layers go that this that's obviously the cult putting Ellen's body up in the attic which we later find out Ellen's body is up there um, so Annie tucks Charlie in and we get that scene that was in the trailer when uh, uh, Charlie's like who's going to look after me when you die and I feel like before I saw this film I really thought oh this movie's going to be a creepy kid film like Charlie's going to be haunted or possessed and I guess in a way she is the creepy kid in the film, but she's not even in it for that long, to be honest. Well, and I mean, as you find out later on, she's not actually her. Exactly, yeah. She's not even a creepy kid. She's creepy demon man. Is it her or is it not? Okay, okay, put a pin in that. (laughs) Yeah, okay. (laughs) Because I have a lot of thoughts about that and I do want to go through them. Um. Then we get probably, aside from all the gore, one of the scariest moments in this film is when Annie goes into her workshop, turns the light off, and I'm seriously getting fucking chills now. Like, and she sees her mother standing... Oh, look behind me. (laughs) She sees her mother standing in the shadows, and there's no jump scare, there's no, like, influx of screeching violins. The music is already horrible in this film. It's like this pulsing in the background, but she's just stood there. And like she's smiling. It's so creepy. And Annie's reaction too. She doesn't scream. She doesn't move. She just continues to stare at it. Sort of baffled. Which is adds to that layer of scare. Yeah. That's how I'm so glad we're on camera right now. Because you can see we're both looking behind us. Sorry. Hold on. Oh, I think my husband just came home right as we're talking about that night. I started hearing noises. Oh my God, you scared the shit out of me. (laughs) Well, you know what's crazy? So I have gotten on um, a podcast episode before. I have 
ghosts and entities in this house. And one time I was doing an episode with um, a paranormal investigator named Scott. And I went downstairs. I had to quickly go do something. And he heard a girl's voice Stop it, Anya, please. <laughs> so a similar, similar setup. I'm I, home I alone. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I was home alone when that happened and he played, we, we, we played it back and you can sort of hear a very soft, Jesus Christ. Yeah. I, I, I'm also in sort of an attic. Um, it's the top part of my house, which is part of my bedroom, but it's a very large loft room that's over the rest of the house. And so there are wooden stairs that come up and, uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, oh God! Why are we talking about this film? <laughs> we are gluttons for punishment. We really are. I'm not going to sleep after this. I'm not going to sleep at all. So, Sorry. <laughs> yeah. Thanks for that. So after we have Ellen's horrifying moment in the dark, we go to the school, Charlie and Peter's school, and a. At Charlie's classroom, a bird flies into the window, and in Peter's classroom, he's staring at his crush's butt. And the, one of the interesting parts of this film is that the teacher is talking about um, Heracles and Heracles's fatal flaw, which is arrogance. And Peter's crush, who also is very interesting, we'll get into her in a minute. She says something like, "He refuses to look at all the signs that are handed to him." He never had any choice. Does that make it less tragic or more tragic? And I just find it interesting that Ariasta put that in because, you know, Peter does, well, the Graham family pretty much do have everything handed to them and for various reasons don't don't pick up on it. They don't acknowledge it. They don't. No, they don't. Um, so Charlie, bless her, cuts the head off a dead bird, puts it in a pocket and takes it home. (laughs) <laughs> a woman watches her from across the street and just waves and again this woman's smiling and there's something so terrifying about the way that people smile in this film and it's not like a grotesque like huge toothy grin it's a very natural smile but it's just so fucking out of place why is this woman smiling and waving like stop it's just staring at this child at school. I know it's very unnerving. Um, Steve gets the call from the cemetery, and I always find it interesting that Steve gets the call, even though it's Annie's mother who's been buried. So Annie obviously wanted nothing to do with it. She was probably like, "You sort it out. You deal with it." And um, yeah, just another little tidbit that Annie is completely disconnected from her mother and her family. And then she goes to a grief support group, but she lies about it and says she's going to a movie. And this part always gets to me as well, because I don't know about you, but I, I mean, I'm not married, but if I was going to a movie, I would probably invite my my husband or boyfriend with me. But she's just like, I'm going, I'm going to see a movie. And she just leaves. And Steve's like, okay, bye. Yeah. There's just these awkward disconnections in the Graham family. They do not gel. Um, so at the grief support group, we learn about Annie's family history. And boy, does she have family history. <laughs> you know, it's funny. I, I didn't pick up on the, the uh, layers of the extracitities. I'm not even saying that right. Do you know that word? <laughs> I got you. I got you. But um, <laughs> to, to her brother's death, 
Yeah, very interesting. So Annie talks about how her mother, Ellen, had DID, Dissociative Identity Disorder, I think is what it stands for. Her father starved himself to death and her brother hung himself and accused Ellen of putting people inside him. And like you said, when at first watch, this is horrific enough. And then when you know... Ellen's status as cult leader who tries to force demons into people's bodies, it's obvious that she tried it with her own son. Her own son. Insane. And it's funny too because listening to Annie talk about that, she talks about how her brother was schizophrenic. But yet he couldn't handle it and kills himself at 16 years old because his mother was trying to put people inside of him. And it's it's a little scary. I kind of was thinking about that, that where, if you're actually schizophrenic, where is, is the mental illness not actually mental illness? Where is it a reality? And everyone around Annie's mother killed themselves because they couldn't handle it. And Annie didn't pick up on that. It, um, another really interesting thing, like you mentioned about this film, is the line between mental illness and the supernatural. Because at, at first watch, I think probably until you get to the end, you could probably read this film as having nothing supernatural in it at all. And, you know, right. even the title Hereditary could well reference mental illness passed down between families. Um and I think a lot of people that were critical of this film said the reason they didn't like it was because they thought putting the demon in it made it too obvious. But I have to disagree because I love the film. Um, and I think it works well as a metaphor for mental illness and demonic possession. Like who says you can't have both? That's right. It's 2022. We can have more. We can have it all. Right. <laughs> That's great. I mean, it also goes back to the chicken and the egg. Mm -hmm. What comes first? Is it the mental illness? Is it the demon? We just don't really know. What I also love about this movie is that you don't actually know the history of where this grandmother started her journey into being the Satanist and starting this or being part of this cult and why she became such a figurehead. Yeah, she's the the queen. Like you... that's right. Yeah. We, we, well, I would love to know the Ellen family tree. Um, a little really interesting offshoot about Ellen is that she is not credited. Like Ariasta never told this actress's name. She doesn't have a name. Well, she obviously does, but we don't know it, which is creepy as hell. We don't know it. Another interesting thing that Annie says at the grief support meeting is that she didn't let Ellen near her when she was pregnant with Peter. And so she, quote unquote, gave her Charlie. And so, yeah, there's all along we're getting these little seeds planted, which when you look back, you're like, oh, my God, it all makes so much sense. Well, what, what's interesting about that, though, is that Annie didn't let her mother near her son, but doesn't really delve into the why there. And it's that unknown that adds to these layers of horrifying where is this coming from and again at this point of the movie you just think this is all sort of mental illness related yeah is this just a really dysfunctional family or are they a family where one of them is queen of a demonic cult 
uh, or both. (laughs) So yeah, back to Peter. Peter is uh, at his in his room smoking a bong, and he is looking at his crush on Facebook. Now, something very interesting about this his crush, and I always think, oh, I'm looking too much into things, but Peter's crush's name is Bridget Molp, M O L P E, and me being a you know, nerd freak that I was. I was like, that's got to mean something. So I looked it up and Molp is the name of a siren from Greek mythology. Now, is that an accident? I don't think so. Oh, I love the details <laughs> right? that he comes up and with. And you could, you know, as I did on many watches, miss that because it's just his Facebook screen flashes up. That's a lovely Easter egg. Isn't it? Oh, oh, I got a bunch of them. Don't worry. But then I got to thinking, like, is Bridget part of the cult? Is everyone part of the cult? Everyone in this town or world? I, I, well, it's funny that you say that. I actually made a note of it. What I thought was very odd is at the party scene where they're chopping nuts and they're making a cake, right? It's... Like why, what 16-year-old, 17-year-old parties do you go to where they're not drinking, but they're rather, a few of them are in the kitchen baking a cake at 8 p.m. It's, it's, and it's not even like a weed cake. It's not even like edibles. It's just no. a cake. A cake. A cake. I, it's very strange. But actually that scene where you see uh, Peter smoking weed, and I didn't notice this until my last view, so I don't know if this was my sixth or seventh time watching this, but when the camera is outside looking at Peter as he is blowing his smoke outside of the window, Mm -hmm. you see, all you see is the breath of someone. So you don't actually see anybody, but it's so subtle that they're constantly being watched. Someone's watching Peter in the dark. Everything is so premeditated. Oh, it's just so creepy. I watched it with headphones on recently and you hear the breath and it's just like, and it's just one. It's just one and it's like five seconds, if that. But someone is watching Peter in the dark. Oh, God. In the dark. In the dark. Um, So Charlie is in her room making toys out of junk and dead bird heads and all kind of weird things. And I always think it's funny that Charlie is so focused on making weird bodies because she is a thing that is not meant to be in a human body and to the demon that's in her it must be like really disjointed as we'll find out later payment doesn't want to be in charlie um but yeah just a nice little easter egg that charlie likes to make fucked up things because she is a fucked up thing because she's a demon baby There's this glimmering light that kind of draws her attention and draws her out into the garden. She takes her dead bird head out and she sees it in another of the most terrifying moments in this film. She sees Ellen sat in the grass surrounded by fire. And again, it's this not a jump scare. It's not aggressive. It's just an older lady sat by herself in a field on fire. And that's fucked up. It is super effective and also her reaction to it. She's just sitting there staring at it just out of curiosity. I don't know about you, but if I was Charlie's age, I don't remember what age she's supposed to be. She's supposed to be 13. Yeah, she's 14. 13, yeah. But I would have run screaming the other direction. But Charlie doesn't because Charlie is not Charlie. She's not a little girl. 
So then we get a really nice, well, not nice, horrible scene where Peter tells his mom that he's going to a school barbecue. And I just love this scene because they are both so exasperated and pissed off at each other's existence. Yes. Yeah, you can feel the, the perpetual disdain. Oh, it's so, yeah. it's so unbearable. And he's like, can I go to this party? And she's like, are you going to be drinking? And he's like, no, we're not going to be drinking. And then she goes, well, that's a lie. I know you're going to be drinking. And then she says, does Charlie want to go? And he's like, I don't know. And she goes, have you asked her? And it's just horrible. And also, it's so awkward. And this really pisses me off because Annie basically forces Peter to take Charlie to that party. She knows full well that he is a high school boy and he's not going to a fucking barbecue. He's going to get high and drunk and hit on his crush. Why would you make him take a baby girl like Charlie? Especially a weirdo like Charlie. Well, what's really strange is as as you'll obviously later connect this in the movie, but they everything was purposely set up so that this next scene would happen. So what I'm curious is there must have been something that led her to think this and we must not have noticed it. It makes me want to go back and watch that prior scene because there must be some little nugget Mm -hmm. there. I'm thinking maybe it's just that Annie doesn't like her kids and she wants them out (laughs) of the house because she really doesn't like obviously that she has she loves them but does she mm-hmm. like them does she want them in her house uh, probably not and on the way to the party they pass uh, another thing you might not catch on a first view is they pass the infamous telegraph pole or whatever pole it is and it has the sigil on it it has the the symbol that ellen and annie wear around their necks is carved into this pole and again it's like a blink and you'll miss it thing it's not on the screen for very long we know that poll's going to get involved somehow. So at the party, the party is absolutely horrible. Like you mentioned, it has a bunch of teenagers making a cake for some reason. Another Easter egg. When Peter goes into the room to smoke weed, two kids, two teenagers are on the bed. They are watching something on their laptop. They are watching a video of a beheading, like a guillotine beheading someone. And Oh... Well, just, I mean, up until this point, she she's walking around with a dead bird yeah. head. And then... this kid? And, <laughs> what I'm curious to know is what kind of horror movie, there must be some horror movie just aficionados out there that pick up on all of those kind of nuances before it actually happens. I didn't. No, me neither. I don't. Did you? No, I, I watched this. I, again, like you have probably seen this movie in six or seven times. And I, on my third and fourth watch with the help of Reddit and people on Twitter, I started to pick up on smaller things. Um, and I can't take credit for anything except the Facebook thing. I did figure out by myself, but I'm sure everyone knows that. If who, everyone who's obsessed. Well, with I, I didn't pick up on well, that. Well, that's good. Oh, I, I, that's good. That's good. <laughs> Peter fobs Charlie off to get some chocolate cake because he wants to go and smoke weed with Bridget. And... Charlie starts eating the cake her breathing becomes labored and we figure out that the cake had nuts or we've seen the cake had nuts before but Charlie didn't know at this point (sighs) I feel like I need need to take a Xanax before I talk about this scene (laughs) 
Peter rushes Charlie to the car and then we get Hereditary's most awful and most infamous scene as Peter is speeding along trying to get Charlie to the hospital. She can't breathe. She puts her head out the window. Peter swerves to avoid a deer and bam, Charlie's head hits a telegraph pole and... How did you feel after you first saw this scene? I would, the first time I saw it, I was in shock. I, if I didn't scream when I was in the theater, I definitely gasped. It is, it's, I didn't see it coming. I mean, you, you, the moment she's got her head out the window, you're just like, oh, oh, what's about to happen? And as you're in the middle of thinking that. And it, it, it happens so, so fast that it's like you're there. Yes. But what I want to know, so now that the, we know this, I mean, you know, the podcast listeners don't necessarily know this at this point, but it, everything has been predestined to happen this way. That is a massive, massive um, gamble that they took with Peter's life. He was high. Well, and, and they had the car heading specifically towards that pole. What if he had hit it and he died? Or what if he had chosen to go to a different hospital? Or what if, you know, anything could have, what if she had died before that point? What if she had died of asphyxiation? They took a massive risk. And all I can think is that the pole summoned Payman's powers somehow. And he's basically, anytime anything happens in this movie that I don't understand, I say, oh, Payman did it. A demon did it. <laughs> Because there are a few things that I don't understand this movie and maybe you can help me clear them up later, but I'm just saying payment did that. But yeah, you're right. It's a massive, massive shot in the dark for this cult to take. So Peter sits in the car and this is really a really harrowing moment and it's so realistic. And I think a lot of the reason it really, the scene really gets those people is because it is it is probably what you would do in that situation out of shock. He drives home parks the car in the driveway with his sister's headless body in the back and he goes to bed. <sighs> the next morning, we see Peter's face the whole time. The camera doesn't leave Peter's face, but we hear Annie go to the car and the fucking sounds that she makes. Jesus! You can't even... What can you even say? You can't, there are no words for the no words. like the brutality of this performance that Tony Collette gives. Like even more horrific than what's happened is her reaction to it. It's unbelievable. And then on top of that, we get Charlie's rotten head flashed I up on the screen, covered in ants, completely fucked. There are no words. There's I no words. I remember the first time I saw it, I, I had to stop the movie here at this point and say, right, that's enough for this day. <laughs> I can't do it anymore. I sincerely can't do it. Well, what's crazy, I remember thinking in this moment of the movie, like, oh, she's so unlucky to have this many things happen to her. She's lost her mother. She's lost her daughter. Her son is did this essentially mm -hmm. and and is in shock and i still i don't know about you but i still didn't connect that this was all purposeful no way point. no me neither me neither i mean at this point yeah i hadn't seen the the sigil on the telegraph pole so i i thought it was a completely random thing 
And, you know, when obviously, again, at this point, when we're watching, Charlie had been marketed as one of the main characters. She's on the poster, her and Tony Collette, and then she's just gone and very much dead because we see um, her body in the middle of the road. And shout out to the amazing, like, special effects teams, special effects team on this movie because that is I've seen the plaster cast so like the silicone model that they made of Millie Shapiro's head for Charlie and it's revolting and just as scary I, as it looks I so after Charlie is uh, violently killed the family start their grieving process Peter has a panic attack while smoking weed he says his throat is closing up which um I never really got that. I thought maybe he's just empathizing with what happened to Charlie or he feels guilty. Um, I didn't think there was really any like demonic fiddling at this point. I think it's just an interesting look at grief. You know, it's funny. I never thought that either until you were just saying this, but I wonder if that is one of the first instances where it's showing the glimmer of his breakdown and how payment is sort of dabbling and getting in there because Charlie was allergic to nuts. Mm -hmm. Why would his throat start closing up? I don't know. Maybe it was one of the first instances. Uh, Yeah. I think you could be on something there because payment wants this family at their absolute lowest. Um, We find out later that payment can only possess people when they're at their most vulnerable. And you know, what would be more horrific than having a flashback to how your sister died while you're high? (laughs) can't imagine anything worse, to be honest. I, uh, I can't either. <laughs> no. Awful, awful. So Annie goes back to the support group and but changes her mind. And as she leaves, she is stopped by Joan, played by Anne Dowd, who uh, is another masterful performance in this film. Joan is a fucking psycho freak. But upon first meeting, she seems like a lovely woman. She tells Annie that her son and grandson drowned. You know, she's very kind, very loving. She gives Annie her number and um, tells her to get in touch, basically. And another interesting part is the reason that Annie does get in touch with her is because her bottle of paint falls over onto Joan's number. When she's painting her model house, there's a little bottle of blue paint and Annie like reaches over to get something, but her hand never actually touches the blue paint. It just falls over by itself. I'm totally going back to watch yeah. that. <laughs> I see. Look up on that. Yeah, she doesn't knock it. Her, wow. She is like her hand is actually nowhere near it. It just knocks itself over to draw her attention to it to get her to call Joan and go to Joan's house. So yeah, Annie goes to Joan's house and kind of tells the story of how she, a few years ago, Annie was sleepwalking and poured a bottle of paint thinner over Charlie and Peter um, and was about to light them on fire. <laughs> okay, so I want to ask your opinion on that. Um, <laughs> first of all, what? And second of all, my I, my theory is that it wasn't sleepwalking. I think subconsciously Annie did want to kill her children. And not because she doesn't like them per se, but I think she wanted to get them away from Ellen. Maybe subconsciously mm-hmm. she knew something was coming. And she was like, well, the only way to save my children is to kill them. Yeah, there's kind of been a couple moments of that throughout. And I do, I agree that, especially because she knows that Charlie is so connected to her grandmother. 
And it's because of that that she sort of reconnected with her mom. And so I think, like, again, it, it goes back to the same thing as when, why did she keep the son away from her mom? She just has this guttural instinct and knew that there was something wrong with her mother, but she didn't quite know. And I think you're totally right. I think these weird, horrific, sleepwalking instances combined with maybe some serious postpartum depression or, or as I have found out, postpartum OCD, which is um, a little bit different than postpartum depression. And OCD can, can turn into, like I did this when I, I was at, had my first, uh, I hid the knives. And not because I was legitimately afraid that I was going to do anything to him, but I was just so fearful of his death that I hid anything and everything away that you don't even realize that you're doing something potentially that actually be dangerous. And so that connected with the fact that she's trying to keep her kids away. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <sighs> Thank you for sharing that. Cause that's something that I, again, like I've said about this film, I appreciate that this film presents a darker side of motherhood that a lot of people don't talk about. You know, there are these very dark feelings that can come up after pregnancy and childbirth and understandably so because it's a massive massive upheaval to your mental health your physical health and everything and yeah it's just a interesting and very valid way to look at it I think yeah probably there was all kinds of things going on in Annie's mind about her children negative thoughts positive thoughts a desire to keep them safe and this this inability of stopping her fear she's in constant state of fear that her children are going to be killed which i can relate to that's i still feel that sometimes i I mean i i really admire you for watching this film as a mother because oh god i don't know if i could yeah it was it was a bit stressful there were moments where i was like Ooh, I (laughs) i bet i bet um so yeah after this we get the infamous dinner table scene um another scene that has been memed to death annie's fiery speech about how peter she's peter's mother like all she gets back is that fucking face on your face i love that it's fantastic it's like the writing in this in this film is very very smart and but then you add in a little really real comment like that like I can imagine because when people are mad they say sometimes some ridiculous things they that's stumble a ridiculous over thing word, to say yeah like fucking stupid it, fuck idiot and yeah your fucking face on your face is it's and it's just an amazing little loved yeah, it Annie is at this point so furious she's dealing with the grief of losing her mother and her daughter not only that her son killed her daughter yes it was an accident and yes i know you feel bad but now your sister is dead and there's all kinds of things coming up here it's a horrible scene poor little peter sat there with tears in his eyes and poor steve has just tried to make a dinner for everyone to enjoy i know I, what I loved about this scene is this is a very, very raw scene for the son because this is the first moment where I'm not looking at him anymore as a 17-year-old, almost adult. He is now actually like a kind of a, not, not whimpering isn't the right 
way of saying it, but he's really retracted and he's very young. He's all of a sudden, he's the, the son and he's saying mommy. And, and I, I really felt sympathy for him in that moment because I would imagine your mother's yelling at you. She's blaming you. You've lost your sister. You were the one who did that. You were the one who witnessed it happen. Like the, the, the trauma there. And then you're also just trying to find a moment of peace with your mom and dad. And then your mom's coming at you in that way. Oh, it's just crushed my heart. Like, like you said, there's a, a him as a little baby. There's a moment later when Annie is fully possessed where, and the minute where she's banging her head on the door and he's going, mommy, mommy. Like, <gasps> and he, oh my God, Alex Wolf is just the cutest. Um, I love him. You cannot imagine anything worse happening to you than what has happened to this family. And it's just not even worth thinking about. I know it's, and the like the, the, the dad just sitting there too. I, he doesn't know what to say or how to react or who to kind of side with. And then he starts getting a bit shocked at what his wife is saying to their son. And it is just so uncomfortable and traumatic. It's horrible. And it's a really good representation of a family fight as well. Not, I'm hoping not every family has experienced what the Graham family have, but I'm sure every family has had these kind of horrible, awkward, angry, furious fights with their family where no one's getting across their point, but everyone's pissed off at each other. So another interesting little Easter egg. The next day at the hardware store, Annie bumps into Joan by, you know, accident, apparently. And Joan tells her that she went to see a medium who put her in contact with her son. If you look carefully, in Joan's car trunk, she has just bought a chalkboard. And later, when she does the seance, she says, oh, this was my son's favorite toy, his chalkboard. He had it since he was a little kid. Bullshit, did he? She just bought it. Oh, I missed that. She just bought it. So Annie goes to Joan's house and they do a seance to contact Joan's grandson, Louie, who starts writing on the chalkboard, I love you, grandma. What do you think? Do you think this is actually a spirit or do you think it's payment like playing tricks? It's a tough one because the whole thing comes down to is payment real? Is payment actually there? Are they actually... Connecting, because I mean, if it was payment, there there would need to be some kind of way that this cult has already previously connected with him and that they're communicating back and forth. So I'm assuming that uh, Joan was a psychic medium and that's how she was able to kind of cross that boundary. I mean, again, it's, it's all very, a lot of risks, you know, but at the same time, it would make sense if payment actually did exist and the layers were to get them to that point yeah and he was just fucking around like playing as a little boy to get annie to believe that the seance works um so annie goes home after that she has dreams of ants crawling all over peter's body then she has that that horrible dream within a dream where she has a conversation with peter and tells him that she tried to miscarry him and again this is going back to what we've talked about did annie want to kill the children to keep them away from ellen she wakes up from her dream within a dream and she wants to try the seance for herself so she drags steve and peter downstairs um 
to try the seance. Before she goes home, when Annie is very upset and Joan says to her, she's, she's pushing two things into her hands. She's giving her a candle and she's giving her this sheet of paper and she's saying, make sure if you want to do this, that you go home and read it and then light this candle. And the thing that really stuck out to me was she says, your family needs to be home. Make sure your son is in the house. And obviously she's so traumatized about witnessing this thing happening. But if it were me, I would have been like, wait a minute, where was your family home when you were summoning your grandson? But instead she just takes it blindly and says, okay, and then runs home to do this. And I kind of thought, well, wait a minute. Now, Annie, you're getting all of these things shoved in your face at this point. Why aren't you taking a step back and going, why does this shit just keep happening? Like there, ne- there needs to be a moment of self-reflection, but Annie is so caught into her grief that she can't. Yeah. She is desperate to, to have Charlie back just, in any way. She doesn't care if, you know, if Peter needs to be in the house, yeah, fine, whatever. Give me the candle. Let's do it. And seemingly... Well, why does Peter need to be yeah. in the house? Why, like, does, why, would, why would she want Peter that? to be there? Like, he is a boy. Why would she want to put him through that? You know, and she does put him through that. She, they do the seance and Charlie comes through. She starts talking through Annie and screaming and it's all very distressing. Peter is crying. Steve is saying, you're scaring him and you are scaring him. Poor little Peter. And yeah. It works. Seemingly, it works. Charlie comes back. But is it Charlie, though? Peter sees the same glimmering light. He calls Steve and Steve basically freaks out because Peter thinks he's being possessed by a vengeful spirit. And Annie gets so frustrated that she smashes her miniatures. And that really makes me upset because that must have taken ages to make. Um they do. I oh, love a miniature. So I really love a miniature in a dollhouse. But what one thing you do see in this point is uh, there is a doll of Peter's headless body lying on a miniature bed. And that's one of the things I didn't pick up on my first few watches. Like, did she make that? Like, because she's been making dolls of the accident. She's been making dolls of Charlie's decapitated head. Did she make a doll of Peter headless or did the cult make it and put it there? Who knows? Crazy. So Peter is still haunted by horrible visions of Charlie stood in the corner of his room with her head popping off and her clucking all over the place. And the head turning into the Jesus. Okay, that scared the shit out of me. That was that was scary, but it was also because it was in the dark. Obviously, it was CGI in some way. It did not look like CGI. It was. It was amazing. Yeah. It was. And it's so realistic of when you are in that heightened state of fear, a a pile of clothes on your chair looks like a fucking person. Uh, He also has a dream that Annie is trying to rip his head off and very seriously believes that it had happened. Um, But Annie stresses that she believes something is happening. And she also says, I'm the only one that can fix this. And I always thought this was really interesting because that's a very motherly, like she now she wants to take on all the responsibility like she finally wants to take control as a mother she didn't care before where peter went and what he did but now she's like no i'm the one who can fix this i'm the medium i'm the one who's going to save my family yeah it's funny that you say that because i noticed that too it's almost like a light bulb went on for her without her actually noticing it 
and it's strange because she, she acknowledges that if it wasn't for her doings, then they wouldn't be where yes. they are yeah. at that moment. And she acknowledges as well that she needs to be the one to fix it. But it's strange that that she's taking that ownership and saying that only she can fix it because how, how is she connecting that without? Pain? Yeah. She very quickly jumps to the conclusion that she's a medium. Like even when she sees Ellen in, in her room, she's like, right, well, I'm a medium now. So I- <laughs> <laughs> she doesn't even question it. She, and she just tells everyone like, oh yeah, I'm a medium. Um, even though she's seen one, one maybe spirit at this point, but we need a little more proof than that, maybe, Annie. But then she tries to burn Charlie's notebook and it sets her on fire. And this is another thing that I'm unsure about why I think the notebook sets her on fire and later it sets Steve on fire. Well, it's funny because so the notebook that she throws in, she's touched. And then she's asking Steve to throw it in and she gives it to him. And yeah. he's holding oh it. Oh, my God. And then she says... I'll just do it. And then she throws it in. And I wondered if it's the notebook is sort of, if it's connected by, by touch. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. By touch or, or something in some kind of way. And because she had already touched it and it came out, then I wish there was a little bit more explanation. That's one of those parts Um, where I just blame payment. I just say, well, he's a demon. He likes to fuck around and have fun. So that's why he did that. You know what's crazy is if he actually has this many powers, how is he not in a oh body? Oh my god! Okay, point? right. I, well, um, I want to get really into that at the end because it bothers. That is one thing that bothers me about this film. Um, yes, I agree with you. Uh, Annie runs to Joan's house to kind of figure out what the fuck is going on, and Joan is not at home, but on her table is a setup, a ritual setup. There's like sigils, candles, Charlie's toys, and in the middle of it all, a picture of our beloved Peter. With his eyes eyes scratched out. out. I mean, that's a pretty classic horror trope is that someone's getting fucked over if their eyes are scratched out. Um, Then at school, Joan appears to Peter, but seemingly only to him. And this is another moment that fucks me up in this film is that she screams at him to get out. Like she just says, I expel you. So I know I, that that whole scene where he's looking around and nobody else is reacting and he's seeing this woman. And But what I wanted to know was Annie has just come from this woman's house where she's connected all the dots. Now she knows that this woman had something to do with her mother and that they've got these necklaces that match. How did she not rush to the school <laughs> to get Peter? <laughs> she just left Peter. Like, no, I'm just going to go home first. I'm just going to well, go home. Annie's not the best and, mother, and- <laughs> so she's probably like, I'll just deal with... Peter will be fine at school. He's he's not getting yelled at by a strange woman. Oh, he'll be fine. <laughs> to, to, yeah, expel. to expel yeah. him from his body. No, <laughs> he's fine. This scene also kind of it reminds me of It Follows... Um, Mostly because there's a, yes. that other horrible scene from It Follows where that old lady starts walking down the corridor and no one else seems to notice that there's a problem. And not that old ladies are inherently scary, but Joan is an older lady and she's also, nobody's aware of what she's doing, even though she's yelling at Peter to get out of your body so that payment can get in, which is basically what she's saying at this point. Um, Annie goes back to her house and looks through a box of her gram- her mother's stuff and then we get the reveal 
First of all, we see the welcome mats, one for Annie and one for Charles. And who is Charles? Charles. I Charlie. Know Charles. Yes. Um, and Charlie has already mentioned this film that uh, Ellen wished she was a boy. Yes, she fucking did wish you were a boy as she tried to make you a boy. Um, everything is covered in this sigil that we've seen. And then Annie finds the book about payment and... Haman is a real demon from the Ars Goetia. He is the eighth, uh, eighth or ninth key of hell. I can't remember, but he is. Another thing, just a little sidetrack. I love that Ariasta didn't just go for like Satan or like. He right. really researched this it's one demon. And I've seen recently an influx of films now taking cues from that. And, you know, they're not saying it's like Satan. It's like a specific demon from like the Ars Goetia or like. Um, other grimoire works like Valak or Belial or what was the what was the name of the demon in Exorcist again? Pazuzu. Um, Zuzu. I'm glad he didn't go that yes. route. You know, he found his yes. own demons. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and he went in on research for this. There is so many little things, even down to the soundtrack. Um, they say payment is herald like the arrival of payment is heralded by. Twink, uh, tinkling and horns and that's in the fucking soundtrack it's in the soundtrack he went fully into it um the book explains that payment will possess the most vulnerable host and that he is covetous of a male body so that is basically why the cult have been after the the men in this family presumably they didn't go after steve because steve is not a blood relative um probably has to be a blood relative of ellen and um, Annie finds some really disturbing pictures of Ellen, but I can't figure out why they're disturbing. She's in the wedding dress and she's like being showered in gold coins and they're just really horrible, these pictures, but I can't figure out why. There's just something about them that's off. Maybe I should look, look into this, um, actually, because it's kind of interesting, but I know that gold coins over the eyes would be... A representative of, of your soul. Mm-hmm. Um, so I do think they've really gotten into the old lore there of Satanism or cult, yes. occult kind of. I don't know how far back that goes. I don't know enough about occults, but I, I found that image very yes. striking. Mm-hmm. I know that I saw you post that, and it. Yeah, it's that really, really horrible scene because she's like, her hands are, her eyes are closed. She's like blissful that she's married this, or or maybe not even a real marriage, but like you said, a ceremony. It's a celebration. And among all these pictures of these people, Joan is at every one of them. And and even, it took me until this watch to connect it, you see the pictures of of the mom with this woman when they were yes, young. That's yes, Joan. Yes. <laughs> and so they've known each other for 70 years or however long they have, 60 years, which is crazy. So I, I guess looking back at it, this cult, a cult must have been generational. Yeah, they've grown up as a family. And that means Joan has known of Annie her whole life, basically, which just, oh, oh, oh horrible. Um, Steve gets an email saying that Ellen's grave was dug up and then in the attic Annie finds what was dug up which is her mother's headless and rotting body. Hmm. 
I love horror films. How they didn't notice that beforehand is that the smell yes. itself must have been wafting down because they didn't do anything to No, they didn't. But there is one moment, and I can't remember exactly when it is, when Steve comes back in the house and he says, oh, what is that smell? But it's like tiny. It's a passing moment. He doesn't say anything else. I'm going to go back and watch this again after we've talked. Back at school, Peter sees the flashing light again and he hears and then uh, suddenly his body is contorted and like his arm goes up and it's kind of like a marionette and the whole class are watching him. One of the kids in the class is filming it on his phone as well, which is... Oh, I didn't it's, notice It's funny because it's what oh a teenager would do. But um, Steve picks Peter up from school and this is really horrible moment where Steve starts crying in the car. Peter's passed out in the back and poor Steve is just like, what the fuck is happening to my family? <laughs> poor <laughs> Steve, honestly. Justice for Steve Graham. Um, and then he gets I- home and Annie just like just runs out and he's like oh i'm a medium by the way and uh, my mother's dead body is in the attic and if you burn the sketchbook i'm gonna die and he's just like yeah okay of course but then he goes up in the attic and ellen's body is actually there by this point it's too late for steve to start taking it seriously he also thinks it's annie at this point you know he what does he say so it was you that dug up her grave or something an interesting thing is that steve is a psychiatrist which again, I didn't notice until I zoomed in on Steve's emails and is like Dr. Graham at so-and-so psychiatry.com. Um, Steve is a psychiatrist, presumably maybe a therapist. He doesn't have a fucking clue what's going on. Um, he's obviously not a very good psychiatrist. <laughs> yeah. Because <laughs> he's just like, yeah, this is happening. Annie seems to think that the sketchbook is the key to this and that if she burns it, she will die too. But the minute she throws the book on the fire, Steve goes up in flames. He is completely immolated, gone. And then the light that we've seen flickers over Annie and there's that amazing scene where her face goes from this contorted scream into just like pure calm. I know that that was Tony Collette's performance. It's seamless. And it is it's it is like you said, it's such a shame that she didn't even get any robbed from anybody. Robbed completely. Robbed totally completely. Robbed. So now Payman is in Annie. So Payman has presumably left Charlie when Charlie got beheaded. And then I wonder where he has been until this time. Has he just been floating around in like the ether? Has he been in <laughs> in and out of other people? <laughs> Payman's just been hanging out, but now he is in Annie. The yeah, he's been the upside down. He is in Annie. <laughs> Night falls and we get a view of the house from the outside. The minute it goes dark, you can see naked people are all around the house. The cult. Uh, yeah, you can another thing, another yeah. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, go you can you again. can see the minute it turns dark and it's this really quick snap cut. Um, the sun goes down and you can see there are naked people all around the house. Peter wakes up alone in the dark, or so he thinks, um, because levitating silently in the corner of his room is Annie. I I actually I think I jumped. When this you one. see her there, 
It's it's horrible. And then she floats out silently behind Peter. He turns around and just as he turns around, just as his face is at the right angle to not see her, she is gone. Peter goes downstairs, so scary. He finds his father's charred body and then in the dark, stood watching him, is a naked man, the same fucker from the funeral who was smiling at Charlie. And again... It's this horrible, horrible smile that isn't isn't traditionally malicious, but it's pure evil. Right. Yes, that's right, man. That makes sense. Yes, he runs upstairs, he hides in the attic. Annie is chasing him at this point. We get a horrible scene where Annie starts like maniacally bashing her head against the door, like dung 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 dung, which kind of also reminds me of the walnuts chopping from earlier. It's that very like But what I want to know is, so first of all, she's floating upside down in her head against this attic wall that's in the roof. (laughs) But then the next thing you know, she's suddenly in the room. How? Payment. That payment just floats her out of the the house and up into the Yeah, he puts her in through the window. He gets her in through the window, yeah. Payment. That's what he does. Just say payment. That's the that's the new yeah. Payment. payment. So Peter is now in the attic. He sees a photo of him with his eyes cut out, and then he hears a strange noise. Levitating above him in the corner of the ceiling is his mother sawing her own head off with a piano wire. That that scene is absolutely insane. But you see her eyes. It zooms in on her eyes as she's doing that. Oh. And it's Ooh. it's this really um, uh, deliberate motion that almost makes me feel at this point, is Annie still in there? Is Annie aware of what is happening to her? Because obviously Payman loves to behead things. Is is Payman doing it? Is Annie doing it? I felt like the, the little glimmer on her eye, I feel like there, you could sense that Annie was aware. Oh, of Jesus, that makes it all the worse that makes it even worse um then peter notices in the corner there are three naked cult members smiling at him again and the sound that they're making too yeah just like panting and waving at him just that for me that for peter that's it that's too much that's the point where he's like nope i'm fucking done and i have to agree (laughs) if it wasn't (laughs) Yeah. If his mother beheading herself wasn't enough, the three naked people, he jumps out the window, he's gone. He, I, I think at this point, he doesn't care if he survives the fall or not. Um, yeah. Peter lands in the flower bed and the light enters his body and Payman finally has his host. He finally has his healthy male body. And so then Annie's lifeless beheaded body fucking floats <laughs> up to the treehouse peter follows it for some reason talking about it has made it all the more because i've always watched this film and thought oh god yeah this is fucked up but actually saying the words of what happens in this film i know i know if you were explaining this this way to somebody that has oh jesus god or like a like i was gonna say a normal person I meant like a a person who doesn't like horror films. They would commit you, honestly. So Peter follows his mother's body um, up to the attic 
And we get this amazing song by Colin Stetson called Reborn, which is just the the, uh, the pinnacle of this movie soundtrack. Um, it's a very regal song, very suited for the moment. Um, in the attic, uh, sorry, not in the attic, in the treehouse, the cult are naked on all fours, worshipping an effigy. It is Charlie's rotten head wearing a crown on a mannequin. And the mannequin seems to be like made of gold. Um, it's really beautiful in a very fucked up, horrific way. Ellen and Annie's headless bodies are kneeling in front of it. And again, it's Charlie's head. So we've now got three generations of beheaded women. So again, hereditary. This is what happens to, <laughs> to women who fuck with this cult. Um, then, yeah, Joan is I get the feeling that Joan is probably like the second in command of this cult because she has the privilege of not being naked. She's wearing like a white robe. She addresses Peter as Charlie. Now, this has always really confused me. Why does she call Peter Charlie if she's talking to Payman? That's what I wondered too. And that's one of the reasons why when she says that, it made me a bit, it made me really step back and go, is payment real? Is that by that comment, is it sort of acknowledging that they don't know? They don't know if it's really Charlie or they don't know. Yeah. I mean, one of the things, Ariasta has come out and said this. So this is actually his vision that Charlie was never Charlie since presumably before she was born, payment was put in her to kind of I guess, wait until Peter was ready. So he's been in a holding pen uh, and not very happy about it. So maybe they've just gotten used to addressing payment as Charlie or worshipping Charlie. I don't know. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you on that. That is quite a confusing moment. The things that I like about this movie is the subtleties. And maybe this was the only way they could address it to people who didn't pick up on all the nuances possibly yes yeah 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 maybe yeah maybe then once they say charlie people are like oh they've clocked payment was charlie the whole time maybe payment and charlie are the same thing and the name is fine you can use payment or charlie because charlie has never charlie never existed so joan explains that payment one of the eight kings of hell now has his healthy male host and peter peter who's now payment is just stood there with this really like ethereal calm expression on his face um Joan crowns him with a crown that looks to be made of flesh. And let's be real, it probably is made of flesh. I don't know if I imagine this, but I think he seems like he's tearing up at this point. His eyes look wet, like he's crying. And I was thinking, oh my God, is Peter still in there? Yeah, what's funny about you saying that is while I was watching it, what it, what kind of came to me was the last moments of Peter's speech to, to in any kind of capacity is him reverting back to being a child where he's going mommy 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 and so I kind of thought it's almost like he's being reborn as payment and so payment's looking at everything through childlike eyes and and that's sort of why he's looking the way he is because he's just so at peace because now he's in a male body but he's also seeing the world through this new childish kind of 
perspective. Yeah, because we don't know. Maybe payment like gets reset every time he's in a new body. So he might just because that. And yes, oh my God, you're right. Because that's why jo- Joan explains to him who he is. She says, you are payment. So he's probably just... And the song is called "Fucking Hell." You figured it out. <laughs> the song is, the song is called "Reborn" as well. So yeah, he's Payman oh. is coming to in his new body. He's looking around. He's thinking, "Oh my god, look at all these people who are here for me." It's like a beautiful moment. Mm-hmm. And then he kind of he kind of embraces who he is in that last. And that moment. explains the calm almost in awe like he kind of tilts his head and looks at he's like wow this is all for me and um then the cult cry out hail payment a lovely moment of celebration for payment and then the last shot is very reminiscent of that first shot where it looks like a doll's house the tree house with all its cult members and peter payment stood in the middle and the light coming down and it also reminded me of a nativity set because Joan says we reject the Trinity. It's very biblical. They obviously are very anti-religion, uh, anti-Christianity. Um, yes. And, you know, now that you're saying that as well, Midsummer has very similar visuals with the triangular, I don't know if that's a shed or... Yeah, where they, the whole guy right, do the... Light yeah, I that. mean, Ariasta is very much... Um, I mean, he's, this guy has only done two films, Um, but both of them, you know, they both have massive amounts of head trauma, (laughs) mentally and physically. (laughs) They both have a crowning moment at the end. They have two protagonists who get crowned, but don't really understand the magnitude of the, like the severity of the situation they're in. And like you said, the triangle shape. Um, Yeah, I'm kind of, hoping that Ariasta will make a third I mean obviously he will make more films but I'd like him to make a third similar horror with maybe a crown a final shot of someone being crowned in some way that would I thought I read so I'm just grabbing my phone I think he's in pre-production for well, something. he's got a film coming out with Joaquin Phoenix but I don't know if it's a horror I hope it is We've got a title and we've got that Joaquin Phoenix is in it. So I'm already on board just for the fact it's Ariasta, but um, Joaquin Phoenix is just a joy to watch in anything. But I hope he goes horror again, at least for just one more. I mean, my brain likes to have things in threes and I'd really like a third to make it like a trilogy of people being crowned by fucked up cults. I would just love it. You know, I would be surprised if he didn't stay within that genre. I mean, when I'm just looking up Disappointment Boulevard, which is his new one, um, it says that it is comedy drama horror. Um, And it says that this is what they've got on it, that it's a decade-spanning portrait of one of the most successful entrepreneurs of all time. But if it's going to be within that horror genre, again, I mean, that would be like Jordan Peele not doing a horror movie. These guys need to stay true to their fans. <laughs> we got to have one more from Ariasta just before he moves on to do anything else. And I wish him all the best of luck because he's a fantastic filmmaker. And he's also a real weird little nerd guy. And I love him. And I, I love how passionate he is about filmmaking and how much detail he puts in i mean i have a whole list of easter eggs here i didn't even mention uh for example there's one point where a leaflet comes through the door 
which um, has a seance advertised on it. And it's obviously the cult pushing it through the door so that Annie will pick it up and do a seance. And if anyone has any more, please get in touch because I'm desperate to know everything and every single tiny moment in this film. Um, But yeah, that's hereditary for you. Anya, thank you so much for coming on today and going through all the little ins and outs and niggly wiggly bits of Hereditary. It's been so much fun. So much fun. Thank you so much for having me. I adore your podcast, so I I felt very honored to be part of it. Everybody, follow Anya on Instagram and Twitter at Anya underscore Gore and follow Anya's podcast at Horror and More with Anya Gore. Check out her Patreon, which I will link in the show notes. And I'll also just put Anya's link tree in there so you can check out all her amazing and terrifying photo shoots. Follow me on Instagram, Twitter, Hornblood Fire. Subscribe to the Hornblood Fire newsletter. Keep an eye out for all the upcoming stuff and episodes, blah, 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 blah. Thank you so much for listening and I will see you next time.